Want truly hydrated skin? Meet Osea's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER. This podcast contains explicit language. Tax reform is a big deal, but Donald Trump's reshaping of the judicial branch of government might be his biggest achievement of 2017. Republicans say the estate tax hurts farms and small businesses, and that Congresswoman Christy Nome's story shows it. But it doesn't, and I'll explain why. And if you like Bitcoin, well, you're not going to like our third segment, unless Bitcoin has already crashed by the time you hear it. I'm Arthur Delaney, and this is So That Happened, the HuffPost Politics Podcast, about things that happen in politics. Hello, it's Arthur Delaney. I'm joined in studio by my colleague, Jen Bendery. Hi. And my other colleague, Elise Foley. Hello. Big year in Washington. President Donald Trump got his tax reform done, but possibly that's not... The biggest accomplishment that Trump got, Jen. It's not. Damn. His biggest accomplishment, despite all the headlines about tax reform, is judicial confirmations. Wow. He has confirmed, well, the Senate technically confirmed for him, 12 circuit court judges this year. That is more than any president in the history of the presidents has confirmed in their first year in office, 12. And these are lifetime circuit court judges. Circuit courts are the courts that are one level below the Supreme Court and are extremely powerful and decide most of the cases that, uh, well, they end up being the final say in a lot of uh, large cases. So the fact that he got 12 judges there is huge and doesn't get a ton of attention, but it should because these are the people who are going to be here after, way after Trump is gone. Because tax reform was one big thing with several momentous votes, but the judges have just been happening like every week. It feels like it. They've been there's been judges getting hearing well, judicial nominees getting hearings every few weeks. Um, Chuck Grassley, who chairs the Senate Judiciary Committee, has been packing hearings with several circuit court nominees at once, which is extremely unusual. And add to that that Trump has been rushing through his judicial nominations, so he's getting them to the Hill really fast. And you put it all together, and it's an extremely rushed, pretty sloppy process for hurrying up and filling up court seats. So if you have a hearing where you have a whole bunch of nominees that you're talking to, the senators don't get like five times the amount of time to question them, do they? No. So they they just, you know, they have their whatever two minutes, and they just have to talk to Five different people. They have five minutes. And in one case, I watched uh, them talk to five different nominees sitting there on a panel together. And you have five minutes to ask these people who are going to get lifetime court seats everything you can possibly think of that you might need to know about how they think as a as a judicial person, about their background, about um, dozens and dozens of pages of their records, you know, the, on their past writings or 
um, clubs or groups they were part of. I mean, you have five minutes to consolidate everything about all of these people and ask them the most important things you can think of. It is extremely challenging for senators to really have a good crack at um, getting a real sense of who these people are. So what's the rush? Why are they doing that? I mean, obviously, a president wants to make his mark on the judicial branch of government. But why do they why are they going so fast? Because filling courts up with judges is a huge priority for conservatives. And it always has been. It's it, there just isn't quite the same push on the Democratic side. I don't know why. But um, all the stars aligned for them to just make a huge dent in the federal courts this year, because um, when President Obama was in the White House, Republicans in the Senate refused to confirm a whole bunch of his judges with the hope that a Republican would win the White House last year, and then they could take all those empty seats and just fill them up with judges that they did like that were from a Republican president. So Trump inherited tons and tons and tons of empty seats to fill. Including on the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is the big one, obviously, that everyone talks about. But I'm talking about like dozens and dozens and dozens of lifetime federal court seats just empty for Trump to fill. So you add all the vacancies up, and then you take – uh, a White House that's just pumping out judicial nominees really fast and pretty sloppily. And then you send them to the Senate where it's all Republicans running everything and they're flying through with the, their process. So you put it all together and you just have tons and tons of judges getting processed and confirmed. Speaking of sloppy, there is an extremely viral clip of this one judge seeming like a completely unqualified nominee at a, at a hearing last week. Who was that guy? That was Peterson. Matthew Peterson. Okay, and and we will play that clip now. Have any of you not tried a case to verdict in a courtroom, Mr. Pitch? Have you ever tried a jury trial? I have not. Civil? No. Criminal? No. Bench? No. State or federal court? I have not. Okay. Have you ever taken a deposition? I was involved in taking depositions when I was associate uh, mm-hmm. at Wiley Ryan when I uh, first came out of law school, um, but that that was. Uh, Have you ever how, how many how many depositions? I would, um, I'd be struggling to, to, to remember. Uh, Le- but less than ten. Yes. Less than five. Probably somewhere okay. in that range. Have you ever tried taking a, a deposition by yourself? Uh, I believe no. Okay. Uh, have you ever argued a motion in state court? I have not. Have you ever argued a motion in federal court? No. So that was uh, John Kennedy, the Republican senator from Louisiana, just shredding Matthew Peterson and Jen. I feel so bad for that guy. Yeah. It's <laughs> my that unpopular was, opinion. Now, you, the, you are allowed to feel uh, what the Germans call Fremdschaman, <laughs> which is external shame. <laughs> Uh, because that was tough, you know. He well, wasn't he evading the statement later, saying, you know, he does have a lot of experience, but well, clearly not in the right thing. Right, in, in, in the clip, he was not. Tr- he was not. <laughs> trying- he has experience. You know, he's we all not have an a idiot. lot of experience in things. Yeah, he did not <laughs> yeah. have a lot of experience. Okay. Well, he, he wasn't. That. I feel sorry for him just because he wasn't trying to hide it, and right. Kennedy just didn't let up. Yeah, yeah, but come on, the guy thought he could just sail through. To be a lifetime federal judge? That's I'm not saying I'd vote for him. <laughs> I'm just saying I feel bad for the guy. So the guy, anyway. the guy did not sail through. Jen Bendery, you broke the news that he dropped out. I did. He, he withdrew his name because he was humiliated. And he said um, that something about like he didn't realize that his many years in public office, he works for the FEC, 
would be upended by his two worst minutes on television. Wow. They were two pretty bad minutes. They were, it was actually five minutes, and it was extremely painful. And That thing was all uh, over Facebook. It was. It, it's As someone who covers judicial nominations regularly, it's refreshing to see people pay attention to a really bad judicial Do nominee. You, why did John Kennedy want to screw up his own party's court-filling process like that? Well, there's there's a rich story to that. Part of it is that, you know, he's a he's a senator who wants to believe that judicial nominees are qualified to be judges, you know, uh, regardless of Republican or Democrat. That's nice. That's nice and that's part of it. Part <laughs> of it it is this that. thing called principle we don't see much of around here. Another piece of it is that um, he's taken issue with the way the White House has generally been putting forward certain nominees. Um, some of the people who've come forward are friends with the guy in the White House who's in charge of the process. And I think Senator Kennedy is aware of this, and that's also not very um, you know, appealing to a senator who's trying to get a legitimate judge through. So I think Kennedy had problems with the process and with the way the White House is doing this. And then with this particular nominee, he he just kind of – he didn't even know going into that hearing how bad it was going to be for him. So and this, as he asked him more questions, he was, I think – Yeah, he didn't you know, go in being like, I'm going to no. give this guy a terrible day. No, I think he learned it. These he factual learned questions as he went. Like, oh, boy. Yeah, it was bad. But there this? were four other people at the witness table. Sitting there yeah, silently. Are any, of, are any of them, like, you know, people that – People should be paying attention to, and then just didn't get questioned as much because everybody looked at this guy. Or well, I think it seems of like them, a risk of you know these these hearings. Yeah, and I think a lot of all of these nominees should be getting very close attention because these are lifetime federal judges. So the fact that they're cramming them all into one hearing like that, he was on a panel of five, makes it extremely difficult for scrutiny of every individual person's background. Um, but so far, the other four have not come out looking as incompetent. Um, you know, a lot of Trump's judicial nominees are very conservative, and co- along with that comes records of being very anti-LGBT and very anti-abortion rights, and very uh, there's some that have uh, really disturbing backgrounds with regard to voter suppression and things they've done in their past to suppress voting. One guy in particular in North Carolina, um, Thomas Farr. So. They all deserve scrutiny. The problem is they're just rushing them through so much. You shouldn't see a panel of five in the first place getting their confirmation hearing together. And then once it's all done, though, there's really nothing that can be done about it. Right? No. I mean, once you're you, – They're in. You, you clear the Senate Judiciary Committee. They vote you out. Then the full Senate has to vote. And nine times out of ten, every Republican is going to vote for a Trump judge. And most Democrats will vote no. And then they're a judge for the rest of their lives. And the only way they can really – move out, lose their job from there is to be impeached. I mean, there's a whole process for removing a federal judge or they could resign in embarrassment if something really bad happened. But it's very difficult once they're confirmed. Matthew Peterson was not the first manifestly unqualified nominee. Uh, You reported on this, that other guy a few months ago whom the American Bar Association had said, no way, this guy is the worst. We do not support this. And and that was remarkable because the ABA is not a partisan policy shop, right? Some people are trying to paint the ABA as being very lefty, but it's worth noting that they've been doing these assessments of judicial nominees for decades and of Trump's 50 or I think he's up to 59 judicial nominees this year. They have rated four of them not qualified, which means the other 55 in some form or another 
were qualified, according to the ABA. But they did find four, in conclusion uh, of an exhaustive review, they found four to be not qualified to be a a judge. That's an extremely high number. By contrast, Obama didn't have any. Why would you? Uh, you, There's a lot of people. There's a lot of people, a lot of lawyers out there. Uh, One of the biggest reasons why this is happening is because Trump is bucking the trend that other presidents have done where they go to the ABA first and have the ABA review their nominees and then put out a a rating of them before the president announces a nominee. So Obama had some nominees, well, some people he chose to potentially become nominees that he sent to the ABA to review – they reviewed them. In some cases, they said, we don't think this one's qualified. And Obama could quietly remove that person and put someone else in with very little attention because that, he never nominated them. Yeah. Just don't you know, save yourself the embarrassment. Exactly. And for some reason uh, – well, not for some reason because he's in such a hurry. Trump is just trying to put everyone through and later comes the ABA analysis. And that's very public. And then these people have already been nominated. And now we're all watching this president – You know be embarrassed because his nominees are really embarrassing. And now the American Bar Association is liberal, just like the the Tax Policy Center is liberal, even though it's got a bunch of Republicans involved in it. I mean, anything that's anti-Trump is liberal. That's what's happening right now. I mean, these same senators, Republicans in the Senate who are accusing the ABA of being really liberal and partisan, you can go back, you know, a very few years and find them praising the ABA and how important their their ratings are of judges. It just depends on who's in the White House and who controls the Senate. I mean, Trump basically accused Kennedy of being liberal, right? When he was like, oh, this, this, you know, that senator who was questioning my judicial nominee was, you know, no, no. Opposed to me or something well, the, like that. The hilarious thing about this it all is somebody is, in his own party. Well, so it was actually a White House spokesman who who kind of trashed Kennedy and said, "Oh, this is one of the president's critics, just you know, coming after Trump." Not but, true. But then Trump himself uh, talked, called Senator Kennedy. They had a conversation, and then Kennedy went on TV and said Trump told him that he agreed with him that the nominee was terrible, <laughs> and that and he also said, "P.S. You know, if you guys in the Senate, you know, if you think my nominees suck." You should totally reject them. So this just goes to show how checked out Trump is from the process himself. It's his team fueled by a very conservative group of uh, people in there picking nominees and rushing them through. Trump's just kind of hanging out on the sidelines. It's also I would I imagine the flurry of nominations that you can't even keep track of is uh, that's happening with everything right now. There's so much news going on and so many big controversies that it's impossible to fixate on any of them for more than a very short time. Like there's there's uh, tax reform going on. There's the Robert Mueller investigation in which the president potentially obstructed justice. And n- no one of these things really consumes center stage for more than a second. Does that... No. Yeah. Yes. I think that's true. Absolutely. I think I am exhausted covering this news cycle and a lot of other reporters are too. It's too much. And even I mean, and the the funny thing is when you point out something like, hey, remember when that judge uh, withdrew his nomination because he was so bad and we all laughed at him and the video of him just making an ass out of himself. And we're like, yeah. And, you know, someone be like, yeah, that was like two days ago. And, (laughs) And it feels like it was two weeks ago because so many things have happened in the last two days. Okay, well, uh, happy New Year! <laughs> uh, well, uh, the, Next year will certainly be as crazy as this one. Yeah, the the uh, judiciary completely changing that happened. 
in 2017. It did. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens next year because we'll be back. Yes. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Adios. Bye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Want truly hydrated skin? Medocia's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER. I'm Elise Foley, and I'm here with uh, my colleagues, Arthur Delaney. Hello. And Cherie State. Hey, Elise. And we are going to talk more about taxes. Yay! <laughs> so next week, uh, we have the new tax law starting up. Um, it benefits, uh, as people probably know, uh, rich people in a lot of ways. And one of the ways uh, that's really only for rich people is this elimination of the uh, so-called death tax, which is the uh, fancy, scary-sounding word for having um, the estate tax and having your uh, estate tax after you are dead. And so um, (laughs) not a tax on death, but on uh, your estate if you're a very rich person. And so, Arthur, you've done a lot of reporting on this. Yes. Can you explain better than I just did no, what the estate tax is and why people should care? The first thing to know is that estate is just a fancy word for your stuff when you die. So everyone, when they die, they, they have an estate. And I guess if you're poor, you know, you've got your checking account and like your blue jeans and your sneakers. Uh, but really rich people will have such uh, vast possessions that their estate will be valuable. And uh, if your estate is worth more than $11 million for a married couple today under under 20, 2017 laws, uh, it's not subject to the tax. So it has to be more than $11 million in value for it to be taxed at all. And what Republicans have done is doubled that exemption so that only estates worth more than $22 million will be subject to this tax. So that's rich. This is like really simple. There's there's nothing complicated about it. This is a tax on the right of rich people to transfer their money and possessions 
after death to their heirs. And it's a tax that has existed in some form since antiquity and that we've had in the United States uh, for most of the 20th century. It was uh, a way to fund wars, but also it's just a check on super concentrated wealth and political power among rich people. Right. I think that's the important thing is do we believe in equal opportunity or not? And if we do, then the the idea among the people who – uh, among some of the founding fathers, in fact, and 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 the folks who instituted this this tax was, okay, we we don't want uh, the ultra rich to become like aristocracy, and this is one way to check that. Um, on the other hand, those people have already figured out a way to get around the estate tax, most of them by setting up trusts and uh, these various mechanisms, so that they're not really being hit by this tax anyway. So basically, I've seen this as a tax on rich people who couldn't figure out how to hire an accountant because I can't see who else was actually paying this. <laughs> well, if you can you get an estate lawyer and they will help you to avoid it as much as you can at least and you can do that through things like trusts or you can buy life insurance that you can use specifically to pay for it or you can make charitable donations that then count against the value of your estate. Uh, that's one reason the nonprofit sector is pissed about the Republican tax plan. Because they're going to get way less money from rich people who are about to die. Surely rich people will still want to help these causes. Yeah, but they're not going to get – they're going to get no tax deduction for it. So it's – there's going to be less of it. That's simple economics. Uh, so Republicans uh, – I think this is a really donor-driven policy, but they make it into something that's more about uh, – you know, they say it's small businesses and farms that are crippled by the estate tax. And it's... Uh, yeah, well, that's just silly. As far as anyone can tell, totally untrue. Yeah. Well, and the, kind of the way that they, they put it, right, is that you have your family member die and then the IRS comes knocking at your door and it's just like, uh, you know, insult to injury, they come after you. Right. Right. And that's sort of the story that Congresswoman Christy Noem told. Yes. Christy Noem, Republican from South Dakota, is the poster child for Republican estate tax policy. She said that when her dad died in 1994 in a farming accident that they got a letter saying, you must now pay the death tax. So it was like a, a double insult to have – you know, you lose your breadwinner and then have to pay. And you know, looking into your story – into her story, it has – it's become apparent that this is really not a good example of how the estate tax is bad. It's actually the opposite, uh, first of all. They had the gnomes, uh, or the Arnolds, as uh, uh, her, her father's surname was Arnold. They they had just bad luck, and he had a new will that hadn't been signed, and so this old will of his didn't take advantage of a, an important part of the estate tax law, which is that the full amount of your estate can go to a surviving spouse, no tax. And so gnomes' mother was still alive, and they were subject to the tax basically by mistake. Yeah. It's kind of strange to be worrying about policy for such a tiny, tiny fraction of the people and everyone gets up in arms about it. Uh, yeah, it, it's, it makes good politics for Democrats and it makes bad politics for Republicans to be defending it. In the end, they would save the costs of hiring the accountants and the state lawyers, it looks like. Right? Well, the uh, a big picture, the, the Tax Policy Center says this affects 80 small farms <laughs> and businesses per year, right. which is a small number. It affects them. It doesn't destroy them. And the, the rhetoric is that they are ruined. They have to sell them off to deal with it. So, I, you know, I've been asking Noam at the Capitol about this stuff. And 
she's basically like, don't ask about my family. Uh, to which I say, well, you, you know, you are talking about your family. Uh, and, you know, after my first story came out, there's been, there was more digging. And so people realized that her uh, father's uh, estate files were publicly available in a, a, a probate court in Hamlin County, South Dakota. And it turned out uh, their estate tax burden was something like $169,000 and that her mom received uh, a million-dollar insurance payout. So I tried to ask Noam about this at the Capitol, and here's a, a clip of, of what happened. So the question is, you know, if there was a hundred, if there was a million dollar insurance payment, why would the $169,000 estate tax bill be so burdensome? And, you know, I, I imagine that there could be reasonable explanations for why, but you know, without them, it makes it seem like the way you told the story is really incomplete. What's your point? Well, if this is a justification for national policy and it's not a good justification, it, it's not the justification. This policy is bad policy, so it needs to be ended. It's an unfair double tax. You keep talking dollars and cents. My my position on this is not have anything to do with dollars and cents. It has to do with the fact that it's a double tax and it's unfair. So you can write that. So she says she went into debt to deal with the the tax. So she she didn't confirm this, but what I, I kept asking her was, "You by debt? Do you mean that you took advantage of the IRS installment plan for farms and small businesses? The IRS says if you if most of your estate is is one of those things, you don't have to pay it for five years, and then you can pay it in installments." Over ten years at a favorable interest rate, and it, you know, as of uh, the week before Christmas, that's what had apparently happened, and it just it just makes it seem like the that her estate tax story in no way uh, really justified the policy aim that they they said they had. But I imagine telling stories in that way makes people think that this is a bigger, uh, more widespread thing than it is to have to pay these taxes at all, right? Like. You know, I, I'm guessing a lot of people hear stories like that and are like, oh, man, is that what I have to do? Yeah. Uh, we and don't a, really realize the number. We did a poll earlier this year, actually, and uh, 30% of people said that they thought most families would have to pay the estate tax. Oh, I, it's, it's really, uh, you know, point – it's two-tenths of a percent of right. estates annually that have to pay this tax. I was at a at a tax – Cut event with with the vice president out in Wisconsin, and then there was this guy pleading with him that when his mother passed away, please don't let them take everything she's left for us. Well, this guy was a wage employee at this in this sheet metal factory. I mean, he, you know, I, I don't think that his mother's going to leave eleven million dollars worth of stuff to him, right? So none of that tax is ever going to apply to him. Or his family, and yet he was terrified that he was going to. So yeah, the Republicans have done a great job, and thanks to Frank Luntz, who a few years ago realized that death tax is much more evil sounding than estate tax ever could be, and that's when they started using that. So another a funny thing about this though is that like the uh, all the individual tax cuts in the Republican, or like most of them, that is uh, the repeal or the uh, the the re- reduction in the estate tax that they put in there will expire at the end of twenty twenty five. Meaning right. the 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 exemption level will return to what it is in 2017, and uh, you know they did a similar thing with the Bush tax cuts. They made those temporary, 
and when they were about to expire, they were reauthorized, except the estate tax. So I think it it actually is a bridge too far for Republicans, even though they do like to point to farms and small businesses. They know it's you know basically not a representative way of looking at the tax and. They don't have the stomach to to kill it because it's so clearly plutocratic. Well, it's a good way to raise money from those people who want to get rid of it too. So if you kill it forever, that would right. hurt that. Right? Killing so. it forever, it, the, you know, it brings in about two hundred forty billion dollars over ten years, the way it is now, and they'll reduce that by about eighty billion with their plan. So it's uh, you know not the most amount of money, but it's not really a small amount of money either. Like that's serious coin that the government can use for other purposes. You know, the Republicans who are uncomfortable with getting rid of it said that. Yeah. This shouldn't be a priority for us because yeah. our talking points are so <laughs> untrue. Doesn't stop them on a lot of things. No, no. It was Politicians. Just, yeah, which talking I, points are uh, should always be heavily scrutinized. Right. Which I, what I just think, I think it's interesting. I, I feel like when the, the more you push on a state tax questions, the uh, they don't push back that hard on this one because it really is uh, – I think it is what it was designed to be in antiquity, a way of preventing uh, rich people from just being invincibly rich and powerful. Even not though, that successful no, of, a, I guess of not. a way, as it turns out. But. No, I mean, with all the ways you can avoid paying it. Not not so much, and you know, like the Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin said himself, you know, you have to be an idiot to pay this tax, <laughs> uh, which I think is unfair. Well, then why are we trying to like take tax taxes off of people who are idiots? I, mean, I don't understand that. There ought to be something Darwinian that if you can't figure out how to get out of paying this tax, you ought to pay it and, and a lot of it. Well, here, all right, bottom line, I, I think it's a really important thing to know about because of what it says about the priorities of our politics and. This legislation in particular, when people are saying, you know, this is for the common man, why would you even have estate tax stuff in there? Yeah. Well, thank you. Uh, thanks, Arthur. Thank you, Sharish. You're welcome. Welcome back. This is Arthur Delaney. I'm joined in studio by my colleague, Paul Blumenthal. Hello. And through the magic of technology, we are also joined by the disembodied voice of Zach Carter in New York. Hello. Now, Bitcoin. Everyone's talking about Bitcoin, the magical non-government currency which with a value that is just increasing exponentially that will and it will solve all of our problems, right? No. Oh, no, that's not what Bitcoin – no. Because uh, I only hear cheerleading for Bitcoin. It's it's really crazy, right? I mean, it's it, right. If you follow business news, there's just constant marveling at its value. But what is it? So, I actually argue that Bitcoin is nothing. That it it in important respects, at least, it doesn't actually exist. Um, when when they the, the enthusiasts call it a cryptocurrency or an alternative currency or a non governmental currency. Um, it is not a currency. Uh, first of all, people don't really 
buy and sell actual things with it? Uh, and why would you when it's increasing at like this crazy exponential rate? I think at the beginning of the year, Bitcoin was going for like one Bitcoin was like a thousand bucks. And at the end of the year now, it's like 17,000 bucks. Um, you would be crazy to buy a pizza with that, you know? We're, we're recording this in advance, so, uh, you know, we're assuming it hasn't crashed in the interim. Yeah, right now everybody might be crying because all their Bitcoins <laughs> are Not gone. me, because it means I was right. <laughs> their, their imaginary money is gone. No, I mean, like, you know, when you say, oh, it doesn't exist, the, the argument you always hear from Bitcoin enthusiasts is, well, fiat money doesn't really exist either. <laughs> What, what do you have to say to them? Zach? Oh, God. Uh, yeah, it's it's a great burn. Uh, I, you know, the thing the thing with money is, is that there's a sense in which this observation is true, right? When you when you pay someone with a twenty dollar bill, no one thinks that there is twenty dollars worth of paper and ink uh, in this portrait of Andrew Jackson that you're passing around. Um, it has symbolic value. But the the value that it has is dependent on its political status. It requires a political authority to enforce contracts that are made in dollars and a political authority that collects taxes in dollars. If you remove the political backing from a currency, you no longer have a currency. What you have is a commodity. Uh, You know, gold, if you stamp it into a coin and present it to somebody, say, you know, 200 years ago, like governments did, was only a currency because there was a government standing behind it. Without the government, it's just a piece of metal. Now, people can like metal or dislike metal, but it's but it's no longer a currency. It requires a sense of social and political legitimacy to function as as a currency. And Bitcoin enthusiasts say, no, 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 they're bringing up you know this new world where the money power is divorced from the government and there's going to be this sort of libertarian millennium where everybody is free because they have Bitcoin. Uh, I think this is just basically a confusion, you know. Leaving aside the fact that Bitcoin is not a currency and people don't actually generally buy and sell things with it, um, if you did have many different competing currencies that people bought and sold stuff with, uh, you wouldn't really have a currency. What you would have would be a barter system of tokens. (laughs) That that is that is a system where you you move from a you know fiat money is dependent on the government, but the government is at least democratically accountable in the United States. If you want to be dependent on a system of, uh, you know, on on a Bitcoin type system, you're just letting weirdos on the internet essentially decide how your money, your monetary system operates. And right now, with Bitcoin accelerating at like you know 17 times over the course of the year, the word for that, if Bitcoin were a currency, would be staggering deflation. It would be absolutely terrifying that our currency would, was accelerating in value at this pace. Everybody would be getting laid off. You would have depression-like conditions all over the country. Uh, and that would not be something that you would actually want. That's, this is the whole reason we have fiat currency so that its value can be controlled uh, not just by free markets. Right? Well, the, the, the idea of a free market for money is itself a confusion. There, mon- money is not something that is marketed and, and bought and sold. It is it is sort of like the boundary within which a market can take place. It's like saying, um, you know, I want to I want to have a philosophical argument about uh, about the rules of logic and whether you can contradict yourself. It, just if, if you don't believe that something cannot be both true and false at the same time, we cannot have a conversation about it. Uh, if you do not believe you know, conversations about about money are not actually conversations about markets. Money are things that is something that is necessary to define a market. 
if if Bitcoin is way overvalued, that means it's uh, you know it it could crash. And I wonder, uh, you know, when things crash, that can be bad. You know, that can have ripple effects on other things. And I wonder if uh, the Bitcoin bubble, if that's what it is, is to that point, or if it's something that would just hurt the the suckers, I guess, who've bought into. I mean, it. I, I'm not really worried about a you know a financial crisis and Bitcoin destroying the economy. Uh, I do think it's really stupid that federal regulators allowed Bitcoin futures to be traded on the. Uh, Chicago Board of Exchange and the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. Um, this, these are derivatives where people are betting on the future price of Bitcoin. That's confusing because what, you know, that that was the signature of the financial crisis that ruined people's lives ten years ago. Yeah, they're treating this cryptocurrency like a commodity of some kind. Yeah. Right, and and it's I mean, exactly exactly either it's a currency or it's a commodity. Why why are you able to trade it on a commodity exchange if it's a currency? Uh, and and what's more. It's not a commodity. Commodities are physical things. You know, you could sell a bushel of wheat to somebody or a talent of gold or whatever. You cannot – Bitcoin is just like – it's an ethereal data point in the digital ether. It's not a thing. It's, there's no object that is a Bitcoin. Uh, it's totally, totally bonkers that you would then be able to – Bitcoin – you said just a second ago, Arthur – that you know, it might be overvalued. The I, like Bitcoin doesn't have a value. It's just whatever people bid on it. It's a vehicle for speculation. It's like saying the poker chips at at the at the table at the casino, uh, you know, are overvalued. You know, they're worth what whatever the casino says they're worth. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people compare it to the the tulip craze in the Netherlands. Yeah. Oh, I want to hear about that. Craze. Hell yeah. yeah! I hope one Please of you can explain there. what that was. Well, Paul, you know about that, right? Well, I mean, basically, uh, the va- people thought that the value of tulips was uh, a lot, and so they speculated with tulips. And Is the that price why there's so many tulips went up astronomically, and then it crashed, and people <laughs> lost a lot of money. Oh, okay. Well, that was not. That's as, my that's my well, short version. That wasn't I, I don't as know funny all the as but, but at least there were. Tul- I mean, the, the value of tulips were traded at you know ridiculous rates. You know, you could buy like Italian Renaissance masterpiece paintings with a freaking tulip. But but like at least with a tulip, there was like tulips actually are nice to look at. Like they are pretty and they smell nice. Real so nice. even though this was yeah. nuts and about nothing, there was still some trace of reality somewhere connected to it. There's there's not that with with Bitcoin. Bitcoin is just. It's just an asset bubble in search of an asset. Uh, and so the idea that you would then take this and allow people to make financial derivatives off of this just allows the speculation on the speculative vehicle to become even greater. So there's, there's no productive value to these derivatives that are now being traded. What regulator would step in and what would they do if uh, sanity were to prevail in your view? Well, I mean, the, the Commodities Futures Trading Commission, I mean, has authority here to stop this. So they just have chosen not to use it. Um, and this is not... Be- well, they, they would stop the futures trading. Right. But uh, what, I mean, what, what regulator goes at the underlying cryptocurrency? I, I also ultimately think that with Bitcoin, the, the issue is not so much regulation as it is just uh, economic inequality. Um, what we're seeing is that the economy, uh, which for most people has been treading water, spinning its wheels, whatever metaphor you want, like things are not as bad as they were 10 years ago, but they haven't gotten a whole lot better. Um, there's a handful of people or a small percentage of people for whom everything is great and they've got tons of money. And because so many people in the country don't have much money, 
there aren't a lot of productive things for these people with lots of money to invest in. So they just dump their money into pointless crap like Bitcoin. And the Bitcoin bubble will burst eventually. Um, I don't think it's going to get big enough to really threaten the broader economy. But it, it suggests that you know, there is this this sort of frothy, speculative uh, kind of mania that's that's about to be unleashed in the economy. And that makes me think that things like the the tax bill that uh, that just passed last week are really, uh, really dangerous, because if, if you redistribute more income upwards under those circumstances, you're just asking uh, for some sort of financial calamity. Right. Uh, some economists say what a recession is, is, uh, you know, an underlying problem mirrored by a speculative bubble in the financial sector. So that's why I'm wondering, you know, how how dangerous can Bitcoin be? But it seems like not necessarily. The fact that so many mainstream co- commentators are saying that this is a bubble and this is bad. I mean, that's that's not what people were saying about mortgages in 2007, for instance. You know, People were saying, oh, housing can never crash. That's what you would get when you tur- turned on CNBC. Now you turn on CNBC and you've got Jamie Dimon saying, like, this is fake. So it, it sounds like an underlying lesson is it, it sort of illustrates what economists say about tax cuts for high income people. You know, they won't necessarily spend it. Therefore, it's less beneficial to the economy to reduce taxes for those people than it is to, say, uh, lower payroll taxes for people who will immediately spend on goods and rent and other necessities. Yeah, and I think we kind of, uh, even on the sort of more liberal side, um, there's this this habit of thinking about taxes as things that pay for government services, um, that that there's like a transaction that you get, like you put in $10 and then somebody gets $10 of welfare out of it. And that's, that's not really the way taxes work. Taxes uh, in, a, in a fiat money system, uh, as the, the Bitcoiners would, would emphasize, uh, really serve more of a regulatory purpose with regard to the value of money. They, they keep inflation from getting out of control. But the government under, with fiat money can always just purchase more social services by printing money. Uh, it's, it, you don't need the, the, the tax dollars uh, to 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 pay for it, but another part of the of the you know monetary problem is you know where the money goes, and if it all ends up in the hands of a few people, you know they need something to do with it. So you're not just talking about debts and deficits here when you talk about tax cuts. You're talking about financial policy uh, and and the potential for for an asset bubble to form that could be very destructive. All right, Zach Carter, thanks so much for filling us in. Paul Blumenthal, thanks to you too. Uh, tulips, tulips. Let's buy them. See you guys next year. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Zach Young. Our executive producer is Nick Offenberg. I'm Arthur Delaney, and this week we're rejoined by HuffPost reporters Elise Foley, Jen Bendery, S.V. Date, Zach Carter, and Paul Blumenthal. So That Happened is available on Apple Podcasts. Check out the whole family of HuffPost podcasts in the iTunes store. And while you're there, subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, send an email to so that happened at HuffPost.com. Thanks to all of you for listening. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. 
That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.